Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Literally, these mind practices will create more integration in your brain. And if you look at the other studies, it'll improve your cardiovascular factors, reduce stress, reduce inflammation by changing the epigenetic regulators that control inflammation, and even optimize an enzyme, telomerase, that repairs and maintains your the ends of your chromosomes. That's Dr. Dan Siegel, and this is Psychologist Off the Clock. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, ladies. Hi, Diana. Diana, we're all three here today. It's great for all of us to be here to talk about our interview with Dr. Dan Siegel. And I gave you a little homework assignment before this episode. Yay, homework. (laughs) (laughs) I did mine. I did mine too. Under the gun, I I practiced earlier and then I practiced right before we met. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing how how practicing the Wheel of Awareness went for the two of you. And as we've talked about on this show, a core value that we all share is our personal practice before we teach something, before we want to share it with others. So I'm excited to hear about that. But before we talk about your homework, I thought it would be helpful to orient everyone to what the Wheel of Awareness is. And uh, it's a meditation technique that was developed by Dan Siegel, who we interview in this episode. And what it really helps with is developing something called Mindsight, which is another term uh, coined by Dr. Siegel. And Mindsight is a skill that really promotes what he describes as insight and empathy and brain integration. And what the wheel of awareness is, is it has sort of sort of a pictorial diagram of a wheel where at the center there is a hub and the hub is pure awareness. When we're in the hub, we feel peaceful, we feel open, and we feel consciousness and ability to choose our actions more effectively. And around that hub, like an actual wheel, there is a rim. And the rim is what Dan Siegel calls our eight senses. So not just five senses, but actually eight. So we all know the first five senses, 
touch, smell, sight, etc. That's grouped into one section. The next section is our sixth sense, which is awareness of our inner body. And you know how I really get excited about interoceptive awareness, <laughs> but that's an important uh, component of being able to be conscious and make effective choices. The seventh sense is awareness of our thoughts and our emotions. And then the eighth sense is your awareness of your interconnectedness to others. So in this exercise of the wheel of awareness, what Dr. Siegel has us do is get out of being caught in this rim. So when we're caught up in our thoughts or caught up in our physical pain or maybe caught up in our relationship struggles and find our way to the center, which is the hub. And the way that he does that is through a meditation practice where you bring a focused attention to each of these these sections. And when we do that, when we practice it formally, then hopefully we go out in our lives and we're better able to notice when we're kind of circling out on the rim and we're caught up in all these different experiences and find our way back to our center. So how was the practice for the two of you? How was it for you, Yael? Um, so I am not a meditator. I, I, I know that you are, and I have always aspired to fit it more into my daily routine, but um, I just feel like I don't have enough time, which is probably just me not making it a priority. So I thought I love this exercise because it sort of pushed me to set aside a little bit more time to do this thing that I, I think would be so useful. And um, I really liked the way that it kind of moved from focusing on the different Um, elements that you just mentioned, sort of the different senses, the internal experiences, our thoughts, and then our sense of being connected. Um, And at the very end, he sort of has you do this really interesting thing where you sort of turn the spoke back to try to be aware of your awareness, which I thought was really cool. So I, I love the exercise. I think it definitely is something that needs to be practiced. And I will say that one other thing is that was interesting for me is just this experience of that when I slow down, I sort of notice how I have this mix of uh, sort of an anxious feeling mixed with tiredness, which Mm -hmm. I actually think I layer on top of that, all these other things like thoughts and uh, to-do lists so that I don't notice how sometimes anxious and worn out I am. And I think that this kind of a practice is really useful because it sort of makes you more aware of really what's going on fundamentally inside of your body, which I think so many of us just stay busy so that we don't have to pay attention to it. Yeah. And I imagine when you're anxious or tired and, and you're not aware of it, then probably some behaviors and actions just sort of pop up as a result of that, that you, that are based on that, not being sort of conscious. Yeah, absolutely. How about for you, Debbie? Yeah. So I also, I mean, I find it a challenge. So the, the homework that we had was a 25 minute version and I do like, yeah, I find it a challenge to find 25 minutes when I can really sit there and do this. Um, but what I loved, so I did it several times. So what I loved is that it integrates several different mindfulness type practices that I enjoy, like a body scan, um, 
a compassion, there was a compassion piece and a self-compassion piece. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I think it's a great exercise to integrate multiple aspects of mindfulness. And for me, I think my own personal response varied quite a lot depending on the state I was in. Um, you know, I was really tired one day because it was late at night when I tried it, which so I was kind of dozing, which made it hard. One day I was really caught up in my daily life. So my mind was just chattering a whole lot. And that was, you know, I kept having to bring it back. Um, but the sweetest moment that I had was when I did it in the morning once. Um, I woke up before my kids and I did the practice and my kids both came downstairs, right, as I was getting to the part about sort of extending connection to others. And I so I did it with them. I told them, I don't, I'm not quite sure they really <laughs> comprehended it, but I had them sitting on my lap right at the part when it was about extending love and connection. Oh. And I just, it was so sweet. And I was just snuggling with my daughters and thinking how so often it's like, you know, put on your shoes and brush your teeth. And, you know, we get caught in that, that rim like sort of content so much. And just to have that moment of connection was really beautiful and lovely. So I enjoyed the exercise. That's that, my Debbie. favorite part too. Yeah. The, the interconnectedness part is yeah. really, really yummy. And what both of you are alluding to is this concept of how do we carve out time for this? And if we actually kind of pare it down and look at our values as parents and as humans, I imagine that all three of us and many people really do value exactly that, our ability to self-regulate, come back to our center, find a place of peace and calm, and also remember what matters, things like our relationships. And I think that when we look at, when we look at it that way, it becomes, at least for me, what meditation has become uh, is it's like exercise or eating or sleep as sort of essential for me to be the person that I want to be in this world. So I really encourage people to, to, to find the time or actually realize they have the time. Yeah. Well, and if you want a, a bit of a sales pitch for why it's worth prioritizing this, I think at the end of the episode with Dan Siegel, he talks about some of the benefits that it has just in terms of our brains. And that's pretty compelling. It's Absolutely. just, it's worth doing it if you care about your health and your brain health. So you can hear what Dan Siegel has to say about that in the episode. Diana, as a practiced meditator, I'm curious what you think about the value of incorporating just much briefer slices of meditation into your life. Because I'll, I'll say that while I don't set aside a half hour or even you know 15 minutes of meditation um, on a regular basis, what I do try to do is fit in you know one to five minute slices just because... Life is so busy, and I do really find value in slowing down. But you know, there and it, and it can feel so overwhelming. This idea that to meditate while well, you need to set aside the half hour, and and I and I think that just knowing whether or not there's value in the shorter pieces might be useful for listeners. I know it's useful for me. <laughs> I think it's uh, absolutely valuable to do short pieces, and I've I've experienced that personally and in my practice. So a lot of times in my practice. I'll start the session with a three to four to five minute mindfulness meditation. And just that short little bit 
can completely shift the person's presence with me and, and where and where we go in the session. So very short meditations can be very impactful and helpful. And it's a lot like how uh, exercise has has sort of shifted where we, you know, back in the 90s, we used to get on our Stairmaster for like 30 minutes and pound it out. And now the whole seven minute workout has shown up and hit training is just as beneficial, if not more beneficial. I would say that the regular, the regular practice and doing small bouts is absolutely, absolutely beneficial. And if you take out that time, I would do the experiment on yourself and, and see what you notice. Like if I commit to taking three to five minutes, and there's a lot of apps out there like Headspace or Oak is another one that's another free app that I really like. It's really beginner with Oak. They walk you through um, mindfulness meditation. In a, in a really simple way. So, and, and Dr. Siegel even has a seven minute version of the wheel of awareness. I recommended people start with the 25 minute because seven minutes and doing all of that, going around all of those different senses feels like way a lot to accomplish <laughs> in one round. And it just giving yourself more time with something like the wheel of awareness, but you could do just one section of the wheel of just doing, working on being aware of your senses or just being aware of interconnectedness, as you were mentioning, Debbie, how it really integrates a lot of different practices into one big one. You could just take one section and focus on that. And I think it would be extremely helpful. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of breaking it down so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming to people who are either new to it or who just feel like their lives are so busy and it could just be one more thing to add to the to-do list. So I think starting small is really a nice um, nice way to approach it. Yeah. So be your own scientist and, 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 and work on effectiveness. You know, that's what's most important rather than setting some big goal and, and not ever doing it and feeling guilty for not doing it. That's not, I think, what we're about at all. So... Great, we'll take a listen. Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on the development of Mindsight, which teaches insight, empathy, and integration in individuals, families, and communities. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both the professional and lay audiences. His four New York Times bestsellers are Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and two books with Tina Payne Bryson, The Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline. His other books include The Developing Mind, Mindsight, The Mindful Brain, The Mindful Therapist, The Yes Brain, and his upcoming book, which is going to be released August 21st, Aware. Dr. Siegel also serves as the founding editor of the Norton Professional Series on Interpersonal Neurobiology, which contains over 60 textbooks. Welcome, Dr. Siegel. It's really nice to be with you today. Well, great to be here with you, Diana, and feel free to call me Dan. Okay, wonderful. And I thought maybe we could just start by laying sort of some of the foundation of your work before we talk about the book that's coming out, Aware by you sharing a bit about what is interpersonal neurobiology, which is what you uh, study. Yes, so interpersonal neurobiology is a framework for taking in all the different disciplines of science and combining them into one foundation of understanding reality. So, for example, we take mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology, including genetics and neuroscience, psychology, sociology, linguistics, anthropology, and other fields as well, and bring them together into one framework 
And the effort began in the early 1990s when I was uh, done with my training as a, a psychiatrist and a research psychiatrist, and I was on the uh, faculty uh, at UCLA as the training director, and I wanted to really explore in this beginning of the decade of the brain what the mind really was. And so part of this focus on the nature of reality was what's the nature of the human mind? How does it in fact connect with the brain? And how do we understand that in the larger context of all these different fields, like the study of culture and anthropology? So that's what the field of interpersonal neurobiology is. So it's different from a field called social neuroscience, which is a wonderful field that's a branch of neuroscience, which is a branch of biology. We are instead um, a different field where we're just basically, what happens if you take all the different disciplines and create a framework for understanding reality by looking for what's called the consilience or common ground across usually independent pursuits of knowledge. Okay. And you talk about sort of the mind and, and what the mind is. And, and part of what you describe is that the mind isn't just something that's in our heads. It's also between people and in our bodies. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you've discovered and theorize the mind is? Yeah, exactly. Well, the term mind, M-I-N-D, it's so interesting. The fields that focus on the mind actually don't have a definition of what the mind is. So when you look at even a field called the philosophy of mind, they say you shouldn't define the mind. And in my field, psychiatry, or I'm trained in research and psychology, there's no definition of the mind. There are descriptions, of course, feelings, thoughts, behavior, things like that. But those are not definitions. They're just descriptions of things that don't give us a common ground or even how to take the next step and say, well, what is the mind? And if we don't say what it is, how can we say what a healthy mind is? So back in the early 90s, um, for me, that absence of a definition of mind became a really serious impediment to finding a common ground in this group. I had invited about 40 academics together to ask a simple question, what is the connection between mind and brain? And of course, a neuroscientist would say what Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, that William James reasserted in 1890 in the Principles of Psychology, that the mind was simply the output of the head's activity in the brain. And that's old news, and it's what's been believed for a long time. And yet an anthropologist in the room didn't agree, nor did a sociologist or a linguist. So my challenge at that moment, back in 1992, was to say, well, what could be a way of defining the mind beyond just brain activity that might allow an anthropologist, for example, to find a collaborative meeting ground with a neuroscientist. And so that week between the two meetings before the group was going to meet again and I thought was going to dissolve, led to this deep reflective uh, exploration uh, scientifically in my mind of, okay, well, what could be both within the brain and the head and maybe within the whole body? So that's a withinness to this mind thing. Uh, and between, what could happen in culture, or you know, I'm an attachment researcher, what could happen in a relationship between a baby and a parent that was the betweenness of mind? And it seemed to me that energy and information flow happen both in a head 
and in a society. And it happened certainly in an attachment relationship. So energy and information flow was the stuff of the mind. It didn't say what the mind was, but it at least was the beginning of a thought process that said mind might be what in complex systems terms, in terms of the mathematics of complexity, is called emergent properties. So that's a fundamental part of our universe that comes from something called a complex system is a scientifically established reality called emergence. Now, a lot of people roll their eyes and they go emergence, schmergence, you know, but it's actually the idea that stuff interacts with itself and then gives rise to something other than just the basic components. It's where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You see this in a cloud with cloud formation. You know, you have water molecules and air molecules. That complex system of cloud has shapes beyond just the singular components. Well, what would be the system of mind? Well, it's energy and information flow by the hypothesis, and it's happening within and between, and it has the three characteristics of complex systems, which are it's open to influences from outside of what you might call itself, it's capable of being chaotic, and the most important feature is it's nonlinear, meaning a small input at one point leads to large and often difficult to predict results. So those are the three features that define a complex system. It seemed to me that mental life was a part of a complex system, and beyond just subjective experience, which might be an emergent property of energy and information flow, consciousness, which we can discuss by discussing aware, might be an emergent property of energy and information flow. Information processing, of course, is naturally a part of energy and information flow. And then the fourth facet of mind is something that comes directly from the mathematics of complex systems. And it says that all complex systems have something called self-organization. And so one of the many facets of mind beyond subjective experience, consciousness, and information processing is this fourth facet of mind defined this way. The embodied and relational emergent self-organizing process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And when I went back to the group with that definition, amazingly, 40 academics agreed with it. And we went on to use that new definition, it's actually the only definition, short of brain activity, and we met for four and a half years. And it was really the birth of interpersonal neurobiology. And it taught me that you could really get collaboration if you found a common ground. You know, E.O. Wilson hadn't written the book Consilience by then, but he wrote it in 1998. But we were really doing a consilient effort, finding the universal properties across usually independent disciplines. And that's what gave birth to the field. It reminds me a lot of beekeeping <laughs> in this in the sense I'm a beekeeper. And when you're describing how so when you actually have a beehive, you name the whole hive a singular oh. name like, you know, Michael your whole hive is, is one being. Exactly. And there's, and there's all these individual interacting parts with the system and the system being organized. And, you know, when you open up your beehive and you pull out these combs, they're perfectly, beautifully organized. And each bee has a role, but they're also interconnected. And when I was reading about, when I was reading your book, I was trying to take these really abstract concepts because in AWARE, 
you go into, and we'll talk about, you know, quantum physics and pretty abstract concepts and how to make it more concrete so that I could understood it and understand. And I, I just thought of beekeeping, <laughs> that that that's was the best beautiful. analogy for me <laughs> to understand. Well, that's great because yeah. my daughter did the drawings for AWARE and she is a wonderful artist, but she's mainly an environmental scientist that works with bees. So that's Perfect. great. I'm going to let her know about your comparison. It's great. Yes. That's fantastic. One of the goals that you talk about in AWARE is having an integrated mind. And can you, yes. can you talk about what, what is an integrated mind? And then maybe we can, that will lead us into the wheel of awareness that um, Absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you, Diana. You know, the, the, um, the definition of the mind as this self-organizing process allows you not only to have a group that meets for four and a half years, but allows you to take it the next step, which as a therapist was very important for me working with the people I was working with was to say, okay, if that definition is accurate, then what is a healthy mind? And it turns out that in looking at the mathematics of complex systems, it says that optimal self-organization is created when you permit the system to do its natural thing, which is to differentiate and link. Now, they don't have a name for that, so mathematicians I've worked with, they say, we don't have a name for it, so I just call it integration, which is not the way mathematicians use that term, but we can use the term that way. So let's define integration as the linking of differentiated parts. So in the B colony, you've got differentiated honey, honey areas, right, these cells, but they're linked to each other. In a relationship, you can honor each other's differences and what you kind of honey you like or what kind of activities you like, but then you do some activities or eat honey together, you know, so you're linking together with compassionate, respectful communication. Well, the same is true in the head brain as it's connected with the whole body. There are differentiated areas of the body that link to the head brain, and even within the head brain itself, you can show where energy and information flow is shaped by how areas are differentiated and then linked. And amazingly, um, when the system is linking differentiated parts, when it's integrating, it's leading to what I call a phases flow. It's flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Those are mathematical qualities that come from the study of complex systems. It basically creates harmony. And so what I thought way back in 1992 was that that was the best definition of mental health I had ever seen from mathematics. It turns out to be the only definition of mental health I've ever seen. And what it comes straight from is the mathematics of complex systems. So the proposal back then was a healthy mind is a mind that creates integration, that is honors and catalyzes differentiation, honors and catalyzes linkage, both within, within the brain and the head and the whole body, and between, in the relationships you have with other people on the planet. So a healthy mind is integrated within and between. And when you're not integrated, you go to chaos or rigidity. And when you are integrated, you're in this flow of harmony. So it's like a river where the central flow is this faces flow, flexible, F, A, adaptive, C, coherent, which means resilient, E is energized or vital, S is stable, it's a central flow of harmony when you're integrated. And then if you get out of harmony, if you block differentiation and linkage, you can go to either chaos on one bank outside the river or rigidity. Yes. And what, what you describe in AWARE is the tool of the wheel of awareness as a means to help us develop 
a more integrated mind, that that's sort of a practice that can help with that. Exactly. So I was, you know, with patients back in the late 90s and, you know, I said, well, gosh, if integration is in fact health, if that proposal was true and consciousness is needed for intentional change, which seemed to be true, like parenting consciously or educators using the consciousness of their students or in therapy, you know, you, you work with the awareness of your clients, your patients, then what would happen if you integrated consciousness? It just, that was the reasoning. And I happen to have this table in my office, which, you know, had this central glass, you know, part and it had this outer wooden rim part. So I bring my patients up from the couch or the chair and I'd say, hey, let's try integrating consciousness. And they go, what do you mean? I would say, well, integration is differentiation and linkage and consciousness is basically the experience of both knowing and the knowns. So what if we differentiated the knowns on the rim and put the knowing in the hub and let's move a metaphoric spoke of attention around this rim. And then later on, we would even try bending the spoke around. And so you repeatedly differentiate and link and people started getting better. Their anxiety started decreasing, post-traumatic stress issues started getting better, some mild to moderate forms of depression started getting better, fear of death if they were sick. All these things started improving and I started doing it as my daily practice and it just became this, I don't know how to describe it, it just became this foundation for not only trying to improve people's lives, but even understanding the mind, because what I ended up doing was teaching it to my therapy students, and they found it helped them and helped their clients. So then I started doing it in workshops, and then I did it systematically with 10,000 people in person, in workshops, recorded uh, when people would share their experiences, and then tried to find some common, consilient, scientific explanation for what in the world the mind might be and drew on this notion that if the mind were an emergent property of energy, then could we understand the 10,000 person study of the wheel of awareness? And you know, that that's what you see in the book aware is teaching how people how to integrate consciousness with the wheel and then taking them on a very gradual, you know, step by step, uh, explanation of how that might apply in ways that are really very exciting. I mean, I just came back from Europe for four weeks teaching this over and over again, and in the different settings, um, it was really powerful to see people taking these ideas, even who weren't scientists or, or professionals. So I'm very excited to see how the idea of this origin of awareness uh, might resonate with people's experience. In reading your book, it's sort of, uh, it is very, it's much like a swimming starting in the shallow end where you're like, I got this, I understand this, the wheel of awareness. I've, I've practiced meditation and mindfulness for a long time and it, mm -hmm. it all made sense. <laughs> and then you get deeper and deeper and then there's moments where you get in over your head and that's when the quantum physics comes up. Yeah. And I, as I was saying to you earlier, I have a background in science and it took me slowing down, reading this very carefully, taking my time with it to... Uh, to grasp it. But maybe we can talk a little bit about why quantum physics, how you came to using quantum physics as, as an avenue to understand the flow of energy in the mind. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Diana. I mean, the first thing to say is that, um, 
naturally, if you equate the mind with uh, brain activity, which the vast majority of academics do, um, then the real place to look for an understanding of one aspect of the mind called consciousness is in the brain. And a huge amount of research is beautifully being done to look for what are called the neural correlates of consciousness. And to date, we have some very interesting findings, which kind of can be summarized this way, that integration in the brain that is linking differentiated areas of the neural connections in the head, this brain in the head, you know, are what correlate with consciousness. Why that's the case, we don't know. But it's the theory of Tononi, Koch, and Edelman wrote about it as well. And other people write about it too, that there's this integrative process that Rodolfo Linus writes about, lots of people write about, that when you link differentiated areas, somehow you get the subjective experience of being aware of something. So that's usually about the study of awareness of something. There are other studies, like by Richie Davidson uh, and others, that look at just pure awareness, and it also correlates with integration in the brain. So, you know, for someone who's been uh, interested in integration for all these decades, you know, for me, that was just very exciting. But it didn't feel like it was enough. Because even if you say, oh, integration in the brain is associated with consciousness, it didn't, for me, help explain the 10,000 person study. And to be very specific about it, you know, when people do the wheel, they have different experiences and, you know, there's a commonality now that I've done it all across the planet, no matter what a person's background and education or professional work or meditation history or religion or gender or age, there's these very, um, there's a pattern that comes up. And, you know, one of them is, you know, when you do the first segment of the wheel, you get a, a increased clarity and sounds and sights and you're smiling. So I can imagine these maybe resonate with your experience, you know, and that's very interesting. You then go into the body and different things about clarity about that start arising. And that's very interesting. And then those are focused attention practices. When you get to the third segment of the room, you're doing this thing called open awareness where you're just inviting things. And for some people it's chaotic for other people, it gets really clear. And I can ask you, Diana, what, what was that part like when you first started doing that? It goes silent. <laughs> it, it gets goes really silent. clear. It gets really clear. It's, it's as if as soon as I go into that open awareness, everything, I'm floating on water, everything gets quiet and slows down. And in contrast, when I'm not going into open awareness, I have a chattery brain all the time. So it's, it's, it's as soon as I'm like, okay, bring it on, <laughs> nothing came. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that because this is an incredible paradoxical tool. Yes. That when you invite things in, you get really clear. When you're trying to focus on one thing and your mind does all these other things. So, you know, in the book, I talk in detail about what that's about. But, but how was it? And this is the hardest step of the whole thing when you either bent the spoke around or retracted the spoke or just left yourself in the hub for the hub and hub experience. What was that like for you? That part has been much, has been the hardest part for yeah. me. And I find that I can only stay in it for short periods of time and then I get, I get pulled out again yes. and then I and then I go back in but when I when I have had the experience of bending this book around and being aware of just my awareness uh, I I guess the experience is very f freeing in some way mm -hmm. of just again peaceful 
It's a peaceful. Freeing and peaceful. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And those, those I want to sit there for a while. Yeah. What's that? Like I want to sit there for a while. Want to sit yeah. there for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what, when you're in that free and peaceful feeling, what is your experience of time? Hey, I don't have a sense of time. You don't have a sense of time. Yeah. And what's your experience of being connected to things like the world around you? I don't feel any uh, barrier. Like, like it feels like I'm completely connected. I, I usually do this practice sitting on a, um, a, a porch that's, that has nature sounds and trees and wind and all of that. And so I, I feel totally part of it. Yeah. You feel totally connected, totally yeah. part of it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, let's take your subjective experience of being in the hub and now let's really honor that and just that's called first person experience that you had you just shared it with all of us so that's called second person data meaning you had a first person experience and now you're translating into words and sharing it with us so we're getting your first person experience so it's called second person and now imagine that i did just what we did with you with 10,000 people, not everyone who did the practice, you know, articulated it like, you know, but many, many, many did. So we have that recorded. So that's now called third person data, because you're now hearing me talk about people you've never met. So that's third person data. And now let's go to the third person view from physics about what the nature of energy is and see if there's anything that might, you know, underscoring might a thousand times, might help us understand this because if we go to the brain this is my experience trained both as a scientist but also a clinician and doing this interpersonal neurobiology thing staying with the brain alone doesn't really get you where you need to go for understanding subjective mental life consciousness or this experience of what you just described the sense of freedom in the hub so let's see then if we can um, look at this view and see if it applies. So here's, the, here's what happened with me. You know, I was doing this study of the wheel of awareness over and over and over again in these workshops. And then for whatever reason, I got invited to spend a week with 150 physicists, mostly quantum physicists and mathematicians. Um, you know, and so I would drill down with them on two things. What is time and what is energy? And of course, you know, they would be very, you know, physici- you know, very scientific about it. And they would say, well, there's no such thing as energy because just like there's no such thing as a mammal. And I go, well, OK, in other words, you can't show me a mammal. You can show me examples of mammals, but there's no thing called a mammal. So I said, OK, well, there's different manifestations of energy, right? There's mechanical energy, there's light energy, there's sound energy, there's electrical energy, there's chemical energy. Fine. So there's different examples of energy. But what do they have in common that you call them energy? Because we can describe what a mammal is and, 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 you know, what has shares in common. They said, oh, that's easy. I said, okay, it's easy. Tell me, what's energy? And they go, energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. And I said, what? And they said, energy is simply the movement from possibility to actuality. And I went, oh my gosh. Because I had, you know, collected all this data. I was in the middle of the 10,000 person study. And so I drew this out as a graph where 
actualities would be if you were drawing like an XY graph. So the y-axis goes up and down, you know, the x-axis goes left and right horizontally. And if you made an actuality, a peak at 100%, and went down to the bottom of that y-axis, all the way to what physicists call the near zero point, it would be in the example, you know, I give in the book is, if right now I'm gonna say a word, Diana, and you, you don't know what it is, and we share a million words, at this moment, the probability of you knowing the word I'm thinking of is one out of a million, right? So that's pretty close to zero. So we put that near the bottom of that y-axis. Then the moment I said a word, you know, porch, it rises up to 100%. But now I'm only gonna say words that begin with a P and let's say there are just 10,000 of them or something. It's gonna be one out of 10,000. And then I say Peter and porpoise and all the other words with a P. You know, so those would be peaks arising from that limited, more limited thing, which we're going to call a plateau. If you put in a z-axis and make it a three-dimensional graph, so the z-axis is going in and out of the plane of the page, you then get a three-dimensional bottom thing uh, that is this two-dimensional plane, and we'll call that the plane of possibility. So what that represents is when you're in the maximal amount of possibilities that exist you know, the million words we share. When you're at a plateau, you're at an elevated probability position, like one out of 10,000, or if I'm gonna say left or right, it's one out of two that then arises and I say left or I say right. So that plateau would be much higher up near the top of that y-axis. Um, and then ultimately I can only choose left or right. And when you draw this out, you then can say, wow, if the mind, it's a big if, but here's the proposal. If the mind emerges from energy flow, and that's the proposal from 1992, and if the physicists are right that energy is the movement from possibility to actuality, which is what they say, then what that would mean is that mental life, so subjective experience, consciousness, information processing, and self-organization, we've defined those as the four facets of mind, might be emergent properties of energy, would that map onto the 10,000 person study? And it would map out this way, that when you have a thought, it's a peak, or an emotion, it's a peak, or a memory, it's a peak. When you're thinking, it's just beneath the peak, coming into being. When it's an emoting, it's just beneath the peak. Or when you're remembering, it's just beneath the peak. But then if you're in a certain mood, like a happy mood or a sad mood or a depressed mood, you're in a plateau where only certain peaks can arise. So a plateau would be this elevated level of probability over the plane we'll talk about in a moment, but not quite yet an actuality. It's a filter of consciousness that constrains what kind of thing can enter awareness and become actualities. And then, yeah, I was going to say, or just to check in, as you were describing, if you say a lot of words with P's and the probability of you getting the P word porch correct goes up, how that may map onto our psychology. So if I'm working with a client that has a very high negativity bias, and she came from a history of a family that was, you know, very negative or abusive, and now she has a negativity bias, does that probability of those peaks happening arise? Are they they higher based on your history, your learning history, your experiences, and such? 
Exactly, exactly. And of course, the brain participates in that. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the synaptic connections in that person's brain will create a probability function and memory in the brain even is totally probability functions. You know, um, it creates a plateau of negativity. Yeah. From which only particular peaks will arise. And so the way the wheel of awareness would work with this person is, and now I guess we come to the issue of what the hub of the wheel is, because now we're talking about the rim. And now when we look at the 10,000 person study and see people describe exactly what you said over and over again, when my students go with me to these different workshops, they'll go, Dan, no one is going to believe you that every workshop people say the same thing, freedom, clarity, openness, loss of time, connected to everything. They're not going to believe you. I said, I've got a recorder. I have it all, the data all collected and I'll write a book about it. So they'll see it all there. And so here's amazingly what I think might be going on again, underscoring a thousand mites, you know, and, and big question marks. This could be completely wrong, but here's the possible view that might be true. That the experience of being aware arises when the probability position of energy has moved into the plane of possibility. And that plane would have the qualities of freedom, clarity, connection to everything. And if you then look at the discussion of a quantum physics view of time, you find this absolutely fascinating physics discussion that an arrow of time, which is a directionality of change, only exists at what's called the macro state level. Like you live in a body and we can be in a kitchen together, you and I, Diana, and we crack an egg open. You can't uncrack the egg. There's a directionality of change called the arrow of time. So even if there isn't something like a river that's flowing called time, there is a directionality of change. And it may be that what we call time in these bodies is actually our awareness of change. So we'll just leave that at the macro state level. Sir Isaac Newton discovered these laws of macrostates. He didn't know they were macrostates and even said, you know, I can predict the location of celestial bodies, but I can't calculate the madness of men, he said. And what happens when people, I think, enter the plane of possibility, which is the hub of the wheel, and it's the space between mental activities even when you say, I invite anything in, nothing comes, you're just resting in the hub. So I think they're actually the same thing. What happens is when you drop into the plane of possibility, you've gone from a macro state condition of things above the plane, which are the rim things, like plateaus and peaks. And you've now come to a micro state condition, which has quantum physics rules. And the reason I gave all those quotes in the book from these physicists and philosophers was that we do have a different set of properties and Scientific American even last month in July, you know, it talks about the edge between the Newtonian classical physics world and the quantum world. In the quantum world, there are several principles that we know from empirical studies that we can review, but one of them is there is no arrow of time. Time, if that's the awareness of change, disappears in the plane of possibility. That sense of freedom and lack of time, I think, is because you've entered the mind's probability position 
of the plane of possibility. Now, why awareness, the subjective experience of being aware would arise from that, I don't know. But what it implies is for your client, you wanna help them do the wheel of awareness so they can see that not only are they more aware from the hub, but they are also able to find other choices because the plane is the formless source of all form. And so amazingly you have the mental source of awareness is the plane of possibility as both the source of knowing and the source of new options. So when you have your client do this, and this is true, I think in my own experience as a therapist, and also for me personally, when you drop into the hub, it, it is the plane, and there's where new options arise and a sense of freedom and joy. For some it's love, for some it's God, for some it's a sense of eternity, for some it's this sense of deep interconnection without boundaries, just like you described. And the beautiful thing about it is then, we as a community, a human community, can now start talking about offering to adults and adolescents and children access to this hub, access to this plane, so we can begin to live life from the plane of possibility, not only being in the plane, but realizing you can integrate peaks, plateaus, and plane to give freedom to someone's life because this plane is the portal through which integration can be permitted to naturally arise. When you talk about children, your work is making it into the classrooms. And I had an experience firsthand where I was in my son's second grade classroom and his teacher told me that he was that she was reading uh, The Whole Brain Child. And oh. I was observing the classroom one morning, it was right before standardized testing. And she had them circle up in, in a circle and they were talking about fears and worries about the test. And she was also talking about resources, what kind of resources they would need to go into the test with. And one little second grader raised her hand and she said, I need to have a flexible brain. Wow. That's what I need to be able to go in. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm in heaven Fantastic. here. So it is applicable. I mean, you go from, you know, the, the quantum physics, which feels, you know, pretty heady and, and sometimes abstract all the way to the application where it can, it can be very, very useful to everyone from children to adolescents to people struggling with trauma. And that's, that's what I love about your work and also about this book. So as I was saying, you go into the deep end, but then you also walk us back out to the shore again at the end. And yeah. we say, okay, you know, this is, this is how it looks in real life to be practicing the wheel of awareness and have the experience of integration. And what I'm also understanding is that it's being able to freely and flexibly move from, you know, go back to the hub and then be able to be, you know, move around around the rim and be aware of the rim as well, that it's not that we all stay in flow, timelessness forever. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I mean, that's so beautifully said, and thank you for sharing the experience in your son's classroom. You know, I, I, I talk about five people in the book in detail, and you, you meet a person named Billy, who was, you know, five years old, who was expelled from one school. The teacher is also doing the whole brain child approach to um, teaching in her classroom. And she teaches everybody the wheel of awareness that Tina and I teach in the book. And um, so he learns it and she, he comes in uh, the next day in school and says, Mrs. Smith, give me a break because I'm about to hit Joey. He's, you know, picking my block and I need to get back to my hub because I'm lost on my rim. 
And so he takes a break, he gets back to his hub, and just with the visual image of this drawing that he made with, with his teacher's instruction, he learned that the hub was a source of choice and change. And he, the teacher doesn't need to know the plane of possibility mechanism. She can just stay at the letter, level of metaphor. But in aware, what I wanted to do was, you know, tell you about that story, fine, you, you learned it early in life, in, early in the book, and then you go into the, um, the practice yourself as a reader, but then you come back to the five stories and you say, okay, now let's look back at Billy's experience where he learns the wheel. What did it really mean with the metaphor he was using for a hub? What, what does that really mean? It's just a metaphor, right? I mean, it's maybe a table in our office, but it's a metaphor he's using. What's the mechanism? And you asked the question earlier, Diana, you know, why did I go to quantum physics? To really understand Billy's experience for me as a scientist, clinician, educator, parent, person on the planet, I just need to know more than the brain stuff. And yes, she's right, she wants to have a flexible brain, but ultimately it's energy flow that's going through the brain. And what's that flow? With consciousness, you drop into the plane. Billy was able to drop, say, I need to get back to my plane of possibility, essentially what he was saying, that's the hub. So from that spaciousness of awareness, it's the pause between impulse and action, you know, that everyone um, uh, says is so important. And the mechanism then is here where he drops into awareness. He then has other options in the plane. That's where they come from. And he allows to arise into being, into actuality from the plane, new actualities of talking to Joey about how he didn't feel happy that he took his box and can they share whatever he's going to do instead of what he had learned either at his other school or at home or in whatever ways he learned it to hit other people. He now learned pro-social, more integrative acts of being. And those came from the plane of possibility. So it, yes, we want to increase awareness. And yes, awareness seems to be coming from exactly the same place where other options for choice and change arise. Can you talk about the um, default mode network and how this relates to the wheel and also our understanding of awareness? Because you integrate that as well in the book. Yes. I mean, the exciting thing about trying to integrate all this science is you can see how the puzzle pieces fit together into a beautiful um, hard-earned uh, view from these hard-working scientists and you know uh, in aware what I want to really do is to really you know honor those findings so one of the findings that's emerged is the chatter that you talked about Diana that we most of us have this chattery mind you know when you're trying to focus let's say on your breath and you keep on thinking of what's for dinner or what happened last week or what's going on with your friend or what your partner said or can you do this with your kids all these things we call monkey mind you know when you study the brain activity associated with that what you find is a set of circuits that goes from just above your nose and behind your forehead uh, called the medial prefrontal cortex back to the posterior parts midline including the posterior cingulate cortex and other areas there's are some that are not midline but it's it's dominant in the midline area and that's a good way to try to remember it those areas get very active when your chatter mind is going but when you're instead um, 
focusing on sensation and filling awareness with sensation. It's the lateralized areas. So just a simple way to visualize it is midline creates a map of the mind. So it's not that it's bad. We want to have insight and empathy, which uses the default mode. So we're not making good guy, bad guy. You know, it's not like that. It's just that you want to balance it out. So a lot of us in modern life have a very overactive, over-differentiated default mode and not enough of a development of our lateralized sensory circuit that brings us into the present moment. So these mind pillars of focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention, these three basic pillars of taking the perspective of others and really respecting that and respecting your own inner perspective, that's going to require some default mode activity. It's not that it's bad. You just want to make it more integrated. So I really try to emphasize that um, doing these three pillars of mind training, what the research shows, has the default mode become more differentiated and linked into the overall system so that you know how to be in the present moment, but also choose to have autobiographical reflections from the past or choose to really be thinking about what's going on in Diana's mind right now at this moment? How do I read her cues so I can make a map of your mind in my mind? Now, an integrated brain is what we're aiming for, and all the research on these mind training practices that have these three pillars I mentioned, focused attention, open awareness, kind intention, all three of them are built into the one wheel practice, so it's kind of by accident it was kind of that way, so it turns out that's awesome, uh, but those integrative practices are all in one wheel practice, so I do this every day and I feel kind of full because you're doing all three. And what you get then is a more integrated experience of the mind. And the research shows the following things happen in your brain over time. You're gonna grow a more integrated corpus callosum that links the differentiated left and right hemispheres. You'll grow a more integrated hippocampus that's linking widely separated areas to each other. Your prefrontal cortex will grow. Even the connectome, these more subtly differentiated areas will be shown to be more linked. Your default mode become less differentiated, more woven into an integrated fabric. If your amygdala has been overactive because of stress, it will become less differentiated, more balanced in its differentiation linkage in the whole brain. So in all those ways, literally, these mind practices will create more integration in your brain. And if you look at the other studies, It'll improve your cardiovascular factors, reduce stress, reduce inflammation by changing the epigenetic regulators that control inflammation, and even optimize an enzyme, telomerase, that repairs and maintains your the ends of your chromosomes, telomeres. So if you told me this 20 years ago, I would say, Diana, you know, you're out of your mind. How can that be true? But now in the most rigorous of peer-reviewed journals, we have these findings that I just summarized. So the exciting thing about AWARE is with a simple practice like the Wheel of Awareness that has these three components, the research shows when you do all three, you are going to get a more integrated brain, improvement in the molecules of your body that create health in your life, and you'll feel a deeper sense of connection and meaning and purpose and have the flexible brain that that student was talking about. 
Absolutely. That's wonderful. And if listeners want to try out the Wheel of Awareness, you offer the meditations uh, through your website. You can go to resources, and we'll put a link to this in our show notes, the, the very practices that Debbie and Yael and I have been practicing. And explore for yourself what, what the wheel is like, and then you can get the book aware it's going to be available you know, in many different booksellers, see if your local bookstore offers it first, of course, and we'll have a link to that as well. I also would highly recommend looking at, we'll put some links to some talks that you've given on our website if people want to hear more from you. Uh, And another, just a a plug for my favorite book is Brainstorm. If you have a teenager or you work with teens, that is one that I often will give to um, clients as well. So thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate you coming on the show and offering this book and just your lifetime of work. Uh, It's been meaningful to me as a parent and a therapist and just a human on this planet. So thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for all your wonderful work. And it's really been a, a, a great honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. Mm-hmm.